Hi, I'm Phil Yields, and thanks for tuning into this episode of the Youth in Education podcast, where we explore developments in education, research, and policy that affect young people. This podcast is brought to you by the Centre for Education and Youth. The Centre for Education and Youth believes society should ensure all children and young people receive the support they need to make a fulfilling transition to adulthood. Find us at cfey.org. This episode comes with a content warning as it features discussions of domestic abuse and sexual violence. Welcome to this episode of the CFEY podcast. This time we're going to be interviewing Kate Bowen-Viner, one of our researchers who's been looking into domestic abuse and the university context. Welcome, Kate. Hi, Phil. Can you just uh, tell us a bit about what you've been looking into and what papers you're going to be discussing this episode? Sure. Um, So I've been looking into domestic abuse at university and the reason that I've been looking into this is just that I'm quite surprised that in our sector I feel like we don't hear much about this topic. I think that researchers and universities you know have been looking into this but I feel like it's not often discussed in the education sector. Mm. Yeah I'm surprised that there's just not more discussion and research in the area. We know that domestic abuse happens really frequently way too frequently so we know that two women a week are killed because of domestic violence and we know that one in seven children live with domestic abuse at some point in their childhood so we know that this is such a big thing but it's just not often spoken about in terms of domestic abuse and universities so i was just really interested to know more about that area especially because data from the office for national statistics suggests that young people aged between 18 and 24 are at a high risk of domestic abuse and that age group obviously includes a lot of people who would be going to university there's also a lot of reports in the media about students and their experiences of abuse from fellow students and staff so there's that hashtag me phd and there's been recent reports in the media about gagging orders that universities have issued against survivors of abuse to prevent them talking about being abused by other students or staff. But there isn't a systematic national approach to preventing abuse and sexual violence at university. Mm. Some fairly horrendous uh, statistics and findings there, isn't it? Whilst this podcast is not about domestic abuse and the coronavirus, this is a major issue at the moment, and I know a lot of people will be concerned about this. So we know that the National Domestic Abuse Helpline has seen an increase in callers. Um, other countries who are in lockdown have also seen an increase in abuse, and many survivors are trapped at home with their perpetrators. But just to say that the National Domestic Abuse Helpline is still running, and domestic abuse services are still operating. Um, so it's important for everyone to be aware of this and and tell their friends and families to spread awareness. Can you tell us a bit about what you've been reading recently on this subject? Yeah, sure. Um, So basically, I wanted to find some papers that looked at the prevalence of domestic abuse in universities or the experience of domestic abuse in universities. And I really struggled to find anything that specific. I have read around in terms of some blogs that are out there on this subject, because lots of academics are calling for more research. So I read a few of those, but essentially I I found some some sort of grey literature studies to look at. There's one from the organisation Brooke, which is called Sexual Violence and Harassment in UK Universities, uh, which is essentially a survey. And the National Union of Students have a report called That's What She Said, Women Students' Experience of Lad Culture in Higher Education, which touches on the links between sort of lad culture and domestic abuse. 
and then one by Universities UK, which is more recent from 2018, called Changing the Culture, one year on an assessment of strategies to tackle sexual misconduct, hate crime and harassment affecting university students. So that one's quite interesting because it's looking at the progress universities have been making to tackle those things. Great. So why don't you start off with that Brooke paper then? So it's a grey literature study and it was a survey done with just over 5,000 respondents, most of whom were aged between 18 and 24. We can just put out some like headline figures from this that can give us an insight into students' experiences of sexual violence and harassment in UK universities, which are obviously forms of domestic abuse. So women were more likely to report that they'd experienced unwanted sexual behaviours than men. That kind of reflects the gendered nature of domestic abuse. Mm. So 20% of women said they had been followed compared to just 4% of men. Just going to go through some statistics that came out of the paper. 4% of women said they had been forced into a sexual act compared to only 1% of men. 49% of women said they had been touched inappropriately compared to 3% of men. Mm. Now, obviously, this is awful for both men and women experiencing those unwanted sexual behaviours, but we can see there that this is something that largely affects women compared to men. A really interesting, I think, thing that came out of this paper or was highlighted in it is that although there's a really high proportion of students who say they've experienced unwanted sexual behaviours, a very low proportion of them reported them. Mm. Um, so only 10% of those who, who said they'd been followed reported. Only 18% of those who said they'd been forced into a sexual act reported it. And only a quarter of those who said that they had been forced into penetrative sex reported it. Only 5% who said they'd been touched inappropriately reported it. So we can see that we're looking at statistics on the number of these instances that had been reported to, say, university staff or to the police. That would probably be a huge underestimate of the actual experience of these unwanted sexual behaviours that students mm. experience. Mm. These are terrifying findings, frankly. I mean, the... Yeah not least the low proportions of people who report these things. I mean, it's awful enough that so many people experience this, so many women experience this, but the low levels of reporting really are quite upsetting findings. Why do you think that might be? Well, first of all, I'd, I'd sort of give a question back to you, Phil, is like, do you find it that surprising? You know, both of us have, I, I don't think this is anything specifically about university, but obviously we've lived through life. I'm 30 years old you're what in your late 20s I don't find it particularly surprising that people haven't reported these things I think there's a stigma around reporting things I think it's if you have experienced this it's absolutely horrific and you may not want to talk about it I also think that there aren't really the support mechanisms there especially when you are a young person be you in university or not I don't think that there are mechanisms to support you to report these, these things as crimes. I think society and the way we talk about domestic abuse, as well as instances of sexual violence and wanted sexual behaviour, those kind of things shape the way we see them. So, you know, I, th I think an, a massive issue in terms of people feeling like they want to report something is they might not necessarily recognise it as a crime because they've mm. been socialised to believe that it isn't or because other people around them are telling them not to 
report it, you know, that it's, that it's not a, a problem. But I'd also say, you know, for lots of survivors, I think they are, they are obviously individual people and it is their choice to, to report something when they want to. Um, and, you know, they need the information that is out there to, to make them feel sort of empowered to do that if and when they, they want to. And I, I really want to emphasise these are obviously, you know, these survivors are individual people who come to their decision to, to report something if and when they want to. Um, and they need the information about what is a crime in order to have, you know, to have that information to be empowered to, to report something. And the survey actually highlights that students can be confused about what counts as sexual harassment as sexual violence. So this is interesting. So over half of the students who did the survey, 56%, claim to have experienced at least one of the unwanted sexual behaviours listed. But only 15% claim to have experienced sexual harassment or sexual violence. So that would suggest that whilst lots of young people are experiencing behaviours that would be counted as sexual harassment or sexual violence, because they don't know that those behaviours count as sexual harassment or sexual violence, they wouldn't necessarily be reporting them or even be recognizing that they've they've experienced those things yeah i think as you've already mentioned there's a key issue here of socialization isn't there and society's attitude towards how it is acceptable to behave particularly towards women and as as you noted you know those stats as much as i highlighted those stats as uh, from before as as horrifying they are sadly not at all surprising are they um, no. i think this issue of socialization leads us quite neatly onto your second paper which is yes. about lad culture so, so it's from 2013 so it is you know fairly old now and it was based on interviews and focus groups that were done with 40 women students and a literature review so it explores and summarises how lad culture um, shapes women's students' experiences of education, basically, and, and how that interacts with other, with other aspects of their identity, such as gender, class, race, sexual orientation and disability. So it kind of takes an intersectional approach. Mm. I mean, lad culture, I think that phrase it was particularly, I mean, in this paper, they say it was particularly prevalent in sort of the 1990s. And it's defined as, I'm just going to read out the definition, a subset of student culture that promotes a masculinity expressed through drinking to excess, playing certain manly, in inverted commas, sports, and engaging in politically incorrect banter, exemplified by websites such as Unilad and the Lad Bible. That's how authors of this paper define lad culture. Mm-hmm. Whether people would agree with that definition, including things like Unilad and the Lad Bible now, those I, I, I couldn't say. I, I, those websites may have changed their tone and their focus since 2013. So, you know, I couldn't necessarily say. So to just get into what the, what the paper says. So, in the, so the, the authors of this did a literature review. And one of the things they found there was that existing research presumed lads culture exists mainly within working class men but the findings that the this paper has certainly contradicts that i think we can have a good guess at why that um, assumption has been made i mean being being really frank and quite blunt about it 
academia is a very privileged space. So there's going to be a lot of inherent classism in mm. the opinions held by those people, you know, whether they sort of know they're expressing it or not. There's there's likely to be an assumption that, you know, working class people are like louts or yobs or whatever. So it's quite easy to just blame it on working class people. Yeah, definitely. And it's really great to see that this paper challenges that assumption. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm sure in your experience and certainly in my experience, I've seen that lots of this does in fact come from the most privileged people. Yes, yeah. And that's what something that's highlighted in this paper is actually when they interviewed women students, you know, what came out of that was that it was seen sort of this lad culture was seen as a preserve of the privilege so actually was seen as being part of like the culture of middle class privileged people at university yeah um, absolutely and you know, i think that's a question of power isn't it exactly exactly and not to just go into anecdotes but i could certainly say that my experience of university my personal experience but also visiting universities I'd say that you know I definitely recognize that that culture existed amongst privileged men in this qualitative research in this paper they also so when they spoke to women about lad culture it, they thought it was a sexualized culture which involved the objectification of women and rape supportive attitudes Yes, um, yes. And that is extremely problematic because as we were sort of saying earlier about sort of the socialisation and ideas in society or in cultures or in subcultures can massively impact things that happen in terms of domestic abuse, but also people's general attitudes. It's problematic if we want to prevent domestic abuse at universities, but also it's extremely problematic if we want to support survivors, because if that culture exists, it becomes more difficult for women to step forward and, you know, receive support. Mm. And I think, as, as we've already mentioned as well, there's a class dimension to this, is if, you're, if your abuser is a is is seen to be a much more powerful person within society then it can, that can make it even harder to come and speak out against them particularly if you want to take legal action and maybe you can't afford a solicitor but you know that they will be able to exactly yes you can also see in this in the qualitative research findings how lad culture created this environment for these women where they felt that they were being undermined continuously at university so it wasn't just in the social aspect of university when people were going to, to parties and going out they did speak about that and also about sport but some women also reported being degraded by what they called lads during lectures and tutorials when they put their hands up to speak they reported men taking the mick out of them making them feel degraded making them feel like they shouldn't put their hands up so and that kind of behavior is controlling and so when we're talking about domestic abuse and coercive control those kind of you know behaviors are, are quite similar in my opinion mm. yeah i agree and i think lad, lad culture as a term is a bit problematic to be honest because all it does is mask what it actually is which is just misogyny you know it's a, mm. already mentioned that it's seeing women as objects for the benefit of men when these people are having a go at women speaking in lectures for example it's again it's because they don't value what women have to say you know they don't see them as having things to contribute and i think calling it lad culture it's important to label it but i think it's more productive to call it out as misogyny because lad is yeah you know lad isn't necessarily a 
a term that always has a negative connotation and it has a bit of a boys will be boys kind of vibe about it even when we're criticizing it i think calling it lad culture rather than just straight up misogyny doesn't yeah, definitely. yeah. i wonder if actually i don't know what you think phil but i wonder if things have have changed since 2013 in that maybe people are starting to change their attitudes i guess the point i'm making is it's important to label this specific behavior but it's also important to call it out for what it is rather than just saying it's this own thing isolated from everything else. I mean, like you, yeah. you and I are both feminists. We know that this is just another expression of, of our patriarchal society, isn't it? And calling oh, yeah, exactly. call it its own thing hides that fact, hides the fact that it's, it's a systemic problem. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I, I wonder how the authors of this paper would feel about that now, because I think they've used the phrase lad culture simply because it was so frequently spoke about at the oh, time. Okay, yeah. so you know you know i'd be interested to, to know what their thoughts on that was and in terms of like how culture at university has moved on mm. if it has at all so it's a small scale qualitative study but it does indicate that campus culture is important for preventing domestic abuse yeah um yeah. so it would be great if we could do some more research looking at how to shape campus culture to prevent domestic because as we were talking about earlier in terms of socialization and the impacts that people's attitudes can have on the prevalence of domestic abuse you know it's really important that we're creating a culture at universities where people shape their personalities where they learn where they shape the people that they will be when they leave university the adults that they will become it's really important that we have a culture there that is supporting women that sees women as equal that doesn't accept sexual violence or misogyny as normal. And I think that there is work to be done there in terms of understanding what is the culture at universities in general and what can universities in terms of university staff do to promote a more positive culture and inclusive culture. Yeah, I agree. I think you're absolutely right that this this is a question of culture, isn't it? And you know, how do we how do we change culture? I mean, ultimately, as we've already discussed, this is just a manifestation of society-wide problems. I mean, you see these universities aren't the only place you see this kind of thing. You there's a there's a huge uh, a huge culture of toxic masculinity within the military, for example. And you know, it's it's important to acknowledge that this isn't limited to universities. But thinking about the university context, you're absolutely right. How can we change campus culture to help stamp this out in this particular area? So that leads us on quite nicely to your third paper, which is uh, it's by Universities UK, and I think that's a, that's about changing the culture, isn't it? Basically, in 2016 and 2018, Universities UK made some recommendations about how to support students who experience incidents of sexual violence, harassment, or hate crime. A task force basically based those recommendations on some research that they'd done. Right. Okay. The reason why those recommendations came about, from what I can see anyway, is just because there had been more reports of these things happening in universities. There's perhaps a wider attitude shift in society at the time in terms of incidents of sexual violence, harassment and hate crime. And so a task force was put together and they, they created some recommendations for universities. None of those recommendations, however, are mandatory for universities. Okay. Mm. So no, like, they give a justification for why that was. 
Not that I can see. I don't know. Uh, I would assume that it was something to do with how easy it is to deliver that. That's my assumption, but I don't really know. So this report that I'm going to talk about, the Universities UK 2018 Changing the Culture One Year On report, that's just a qualitative study looking at the progress that universities have made since the recommendations were made. Okay. Right. Um, so they did in-depth interviews and group discussions with over 100 staff members across 20 universities. Do we know um, what universities they were? I think I would have to go have a have a look back at the paper, um, mm. but I think they were a mixture of types of universities. Yeah, great. Well, I was going to say, as we've already discussed, you know, there's a huge class dimension to this. So if they yeah. entirely focus on like Russell Group universities or whatever, then there's going to be quite a different finding to if they focus on universities across the board. Yeah, but in terms of like, you know, are these these are not statistically generalizable findings. Sure. Um, but this is just what what we have, you know. The case um, study sort of thing. Yeah. Lovely. Yeah. Um, so they report that there's some significant progress made by universities, some, some work that's been doing that is good. And that is great to hear. And, you know, I would say that I'm glad to hear that a task force was put together to make recommendations. So some universities were doing what they call bystander training, and that mm. was um, funded by HEFSI. Can you tell us a bit more about what bystander training is and who HEFSI are? Sure. So HEFSI were an organisation who basically regulated universities at the time that this paper was written. And bystander training is essentially where you are sort of training bystanders, so people who aren't necessarily the perpetrator or the survivor in a situation. You're training them to take certain behaviours in order to prevent sexual assault or rape or binge drinking, or any sort of hate crimes. So it's as if you were doing the training film, we might give you sort of things to look out for. Like if you saw somebody in a nightclub who was unable to walk because they drunk so much, and you could see that somebody was, was coming over to them that they didn't know, it might be like bystander training might say, right, that's, that's a red flag, Phil what could you do in that situation to make sure that that young person is safe that would be the kind of thing have i ex i hope that's a good enough ex explanation that does make me wonder though you know if to take that example a bit further if i saw someone in a nightclub who was obviously very drunk and was being approached by someone that they didn't know in a way that they didn't want i feel like it might be problematic for me also as someone who they don't they know to go and approach them and drag them away from the situation you know that could be interpreted similarly to how I interpret that situation. So does this bystander training, or do you know if this bystander training took into account the fact that the actions of men mean quite different things to the actions of women supporting women? Uh, I don't know the answers to that, Phil. I wish I did. I think that's something that I'd have to go away and find more about. I would hope so, though, because I, I completely see what you're saying. But essentially, the example that I, I gave, I think is probably quite a common thing that bystander training does so looks out for red flags of situations where people might be in trouble and what can you do as a bystander from my perspective it's encouraging like social responsibility which could be sort of a positive thing to do in order to tackle issues that are happening but 
I don't know if it's the answer, if it's, if it's the solution, or if it's the if it's the right way to, to have a. It's, it's the ultimate preventative approach. It doesn't feel like it is because essentially yeah. we don't really want these with these things to be happening anyway. We don't want to yeah. have to rely on bystanders to prevent a crisis when when the perpetrators are still doing these things Do you see yeah what I mean? quite well i was going to say this doesn't really sound like changing the culture does it this sounds like teaching people to stop rapists from raping rather than teaching people to not rape yeah which is which um, is change we want. yes but at the same time like I'm, I'm not saying that bystander training is completely like what's the point in that but but it's not the, the ultimate solution because mm. as you say like we don't want rapists to be raping we don't want perpetrators to be domestically abusing their partners. That's the kind of thing that we that we want to prevent. In terms of some other things that they report as being significant progress made by universities, most universities in this sample had implemented or, or were implementing a preventative strategy or preventative strategies to raise awareness of sexual misconduct and harassment. But they say that seven were at a really early stage of doing this. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure what that really early stage looks like. Like, whilst that's like a kind of positive thing, is it really significant progress? And you can see, like, like I explained earlier, it's not mandatory for universities to follow these mm. um, guidelines. So it's kind of like it's not entirely surprising that that they wouldn't have necessarily made that much progress a year on from these recommendations being made. And universities mainly focus their efforts on tackling sexual misconduct rather than sexual harassment or hate crime. So, you know, that they, they say that that was, they've, they've classified, I've, I've written that down as being like something that they classified as significant progress, but, mm. you know, that that's the area that they mainly focused on. Mm. But I should say that there, there was nothing done specifically about domestic abuse more broadly, because obviously sexual misconduct and, and sexual harassment can fall into experiences of domestic abuse mm. but but there's nothing done more broadly in terms of experiences of domestic abuse and coercive control mm. um and, and none of the recommendations touched on that yeah well i mean being again being quite frank this sounds like mm, quite limited progress by the oh, yeah. question you know you're talking about seven of them at a very early stage of implementing these things and also they've only focused on sexual misconduct rather than challenging a culture of sexual harassment and misogyny without wanting to sound too um, grumpy about it this doesn't sound like they've made much progress towards the goal which is in the title of this paper of changing the culture yeah so i've got some <laughs> more points about the um the progress being extremely variable as well which is i i yeah. think the key thing to take away from this is that you know the, that these these recommendations have been made but the progress by universities is variable mm. so they're at different they were all at different stages and that had apparently nothing to do with their size or location it just seems random in terms of the way that you know the stage that they were at in terms of um working towards changing the culture yeah um, i'd be really interested to know if if there was if although it had nothing to do with their size or location i'd be interested to know if it had anything to do with the sort of demographic of the university like again as i mentioned earlier you know like the yeah. russell group university is quite different to the culture of an ex-poly that's interesting i don't know they, they don't they don't sort of touch on that in this paper how would you make so you want to you want to study the changes in universities based on their demographics. What demographics would you look at? 
I'm thinking particularly from the from the perspective of class. You know, you talked about this lad culture in the second paper as a particular preserve of the privileged. So yeah. why my question is why is this paper not therefore compared oh, I see what you're saying. to universities attended by more privileged people versus universities attended by fewer privileged people? For example, Russell Group's universities do have a higher percentage of more privileged people, and therefore the general culture of the student body is quite different to that of, for example, ex-polytechnics. So I guess my question is, why does this paper not explore that? It's, it's a really good question, Phil. It doesn't. I wish I could answer the question. <laughs> yes. um, so, I must sound like I'm grilling you quite hard on this. I think my questions are for the authors of this paper. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's maybe that's something that we, we should be talking to people like, like the authors of this paper about doing, because maybe it's something that, that needs to be done in, in order to take effective steps forward. Mm. Um, but yeah, there's there's a couple of other points about the progress be, being extremely variable. Mm. There's variation in how they were implementing recommendations. For example, sometimes a university was implementing the recommendations like institution-wide, like they, they had a specific team that were making this happen across the entire university. But in some cases, it was only led by student support so so all of the implementation of the recommendations was very much like led it was the way i see it is almost like being only done by the pastoral team which is what i mean it wasn't like a university-wide thing and in, in my opinion you're only going to get culture change if you've got something institution-wide no matter what that institution is a school oh, yeah. a workplace whatever and, and there was also variable involvement from the executive leadership and governance and also i think no matter what organization you're talking about if you want a culture change the leadership has to be involved yeah um, if they're not like what's the point so the authors suggest that involvement from the leadership is critical for success supporting what i just said there so it does sound like there's the the foundation for really great things to happen in universities like it does sound like universities are aware of some of these issues and some of them are taking steps forward there are some recommendations that have been given but what we want to see is all universities improving what they are doing and also all universities taking um, an approach to prevent domestic abuse and also support survivors of domestic abuse not solely focusing on sexual violence mm. so i think it's like there's two things isn't it it's broadening universities focus and making sure all of them do it i'm sure there's lots of work that needs to be done about in thinking about how to do those two things effectively i would say that research is a key part of that in, in sort of my opinion I don't know what you think Phil I guess my takeaway from this is related to the question that I asked when you started talking about this paper which is that why are these measures not mandatory as you've highlighted progress has been quite quite variable across those institutions so so why are these measures not mandatory if, if you know this is a serious problem that we're confronting yeah I, uh, it feels I like agree. the mandatory is not to take the problem seriously what the what the practical reason is that they haven't made it mandatory it just seems like kind of odd to me um but maybe i suppose some people have an argument that like they might say well these are crimes so you know this should be dealt with by the police not the university or they might argue universities aren't schools so don't have the same obligations to protect 
their students as you would do for for like child safeguarding i don't agree with those arguments but that's what people what people might say yeah i mean i'm thinking about like the workplace you know like the in the workplace the employer has a responsibility to ensure the safety of the employees right so even if you regard universities as not like schools and schools also have that responsibility let's not forget but even if you're going to regard them as more like workplaces than schools then they still have a responsibility to keep the student body and the staff safe so to not be tackling the culture which is well identified and well acknowledged to exist to not be tackling that kind of culture that is leading to domestic abuse sexual violence seems bizarre yeah really bizarre Hmm. um i I completely agree but i'm just sort of trying to think about the arguments that other people may make but I, i agree i don't think they really stand up so I would like to see something mandatory for universities, mm. but I would also like to see that being evidence-based. I hate that phrase. I've written a blog on, on why I hate that phrase. But what I mean by that is I, I think research does have a key part to play here. And I'm not just saying that because I work for an organisation that does research. I really do. Like, I think if you're going to do this on a, you know, on a university-wide basis, you need to know what are one what is the prevalence of domestic abuse and i mean domestic abuse not just sexual violence in universities two what are the effective ways to prevent it and what are the effective ways to support survivors in a way that works for them that doesn't disempower them that isn't sort of you know i think sometimes people have the tendency with survivors of abuse to sort of tell them what to do Mm. and you need to do need to go here or you need to do this or you need to leave this person or whatever and I, I think that there needs to be careful building on existing research like building on existing research and careful new research to create effective training for university staff to, to really outroll like a, a um an approach that works and I, th- I think that's really important and I'm you know I'm not just saying like oh there should be more research done as, as often people sort of do at the end of papers like I, I really genuinely do think it's a really important role to play and there are many academics in this area who, who would know, know much more than I would but we should be drawing on their their work. Lots to think about there thanks again Kate for joining us today. Oh thanks Phil thanks for having me. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and want to hear more, please leave us a review and subscribe via iTunes or RSS. If you know someone who'd be interested in this episode, don't be afraid to share it and feel free to contact us via the links in the show notes. See you next time.